Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, listeners. Kevin and I need your help. Yes, we need your help. Please, please, please. We need your stars. We need your reviews, you guys, on iTunes so we can start to climb those iTunes rating charts. It's simple. Open iTunes. Click on the iTunes store. Search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. If you need some help, think of one star being Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the road company of the last five years, (laughs) and five stars being free front row (laughs) tickets to Hamilton. (laughs) Although, when you think about it, I actually would give five stars to the road company of Carol Channing and Paul in the last five years, because I think that would be uh, awesome. I would love to hear, can I hear moving too fast, just Paul? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the one I really want. She's a chick's the goddess. <laughs> and through Erica Schwartz and Danica Weiss and the Handelman twins. So there you go. You can also leave a comment if you like. That's it. That's your reviews. It. Send us Thank your you. reviews, Please. friends. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. We're also very excited to announce that you can listen to us on Broadway Radio. Ooh, how exciting. Now, Kevin, this week's guest fascinates me so much for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. Here's only a couple. Uh, How many children do you know went as Susan Stroman for Halloween? Not many, Rob. Or Mary Flynn from (laughs) Merrily We Roll Along. And I want to know, was it like a t-shirt? Was it like... We're going to find out in a second because I'm fascinated to know how this happened. As if that wasn't impressive enough, our legend's resume has these credits on it. Director of Programming at Feinstein's 54 Below. Author of The Untold Stories of Broadway, which is I was just reading it today again. It's, it's so good. Get that book, please. Uh, co-creator of the Bistro Award-winning If It Even Only Runs a Minute series, as well as working on countless Broadway shows and concerts in various capacities. Still not impressed? Mm-mm. Uh, our guest was recently named one of the 10 professionals on Backstage Magazine's first annual Broadway Future Power List saying that she is leading the conversation on contemporary musical theater. And, oh yeah, she did all that before turning 30. Can you imagine? No. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, to take us from back to before to the hills of tomorrow, here is Jennifer Ashley Tepper. That is like the best intro I've ever gotten. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All true. All all true. This is fascinating. You are our youngest guest by far. Wow. But already a legend. That's very sweet. Thank so you. Before we jump into all the amazing things you've done, I want to go back to where you grew up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida. <gasps> Boca. <laughs> you might have elderly relatives there, do yeah, you? No, oh. but in Naples, but, yeah, but still, yeah. Florida. Wow. Um, Florida. Actually, recently I've thought a lot about how that has really nurtured theater kids because there's so many snowbirds that want to go see shows that theater flourishes there in a weird way. It d- does. Um, Lots yeah, of theaters so in Florida. It was a delightful place to grow up. What was your first show that you ever saw in Florida? The first show I ever saw was, we fight about this all the time, uh, like my parents and I can't decide if it was a touring cast of Fiddler or Chorus Line. We saw both like within a couple weeks of each other. So maybe it was like both. Nice. Either, both. <laughs> Those amazing. are two really good ones though. I would, yeah, yeah they, were okay. both, they were both very formative and I loved them both. 
So the family was supportive about you and your theatrical endeavors. My family is basically all in medicine in one way or another. Like my dad's a doctor, my mom's an occupational therapist, but everyone loved theater. Like everyone was so into it. I never had anyone in my family who was in it, um, but they loved seeing it and loved that I was interested in it and were very supportive. Were you interested like right at a young age, like obsessed like... Yes. It was going to see tours and it was also um, going to theater camp, like literally day camp in Florida um, and doing like Annie and Bye Bye Birdie and then going, I want to learn about all the shows. And um, so it was a lot of like begging my parents for cast recordings and books and watching the Tonys. It was all the stuff that we all did from afar as kids who were trying to learn about it. Um, And that's how I grew up. Who were you in Annie? Um, when I, this is the first show I was ever in, I played Drake the butler. I had a gray wig. I said, yes, sir. That, that, was, that was my major line. But actually, it was really funny. I went to this theater camp for like 10 years, and we would do like a different show every summer. But every four years, we would do Annie, like clockwork. So Annie was always the recurring show. <laughs> so I was Drake when I made my like theatrical debut. And then when I was 13, I was Miss Hannigan, which was like so Ooh, fun. Step up. Um, and then four years later, I was a counselor, and I was like extra hope and like giant orphan that helps the kids um so that was kind of the progression <laughs> not bad i'm so <laughs> and then you did bye bye birdie yes where i was ursula which is like my most typecast role ever because she just screams and is very excited about everything <laughs> you haven't lost that you thank haven't you lost that, that's a good thing. i think ursula is my spirit animal uh, <laughs> <laughs> hashtag ursula my spirit <laughs> animal ursula merkel i love it were you a big movie person growing up did you do you know I was obsessed with a lot of like I was obsessed with Bette Midler Gypsy that was like one of my favorite me too yes totally oh my god yes Um, such a good movie right and that's uh, Neil Merrin and Craig Zayden who then have taken over you know musicals on screen yeah and she I guess she did a lot of vocal training she said after that movie she's never sung better in her life because she trained so hard vocally that her that she was like in better shape than she had ever been as a singer you can see it I never I didn't read that interview that's so fascinating to me she's she's that cast is genius yeah Elizabeth Moss is baby Louise that's right so many Um, cameos in there yeah you need to watch that again okay so that was the movie musical right yes and then how are you getting exposed to these musicals was it just simply asking you know your folks I want this cast recording and it just went from there yeah you know what's so funny about it is that people definitely like wax nostalgic about like the old record store and being able to go to the store and get stuff and I absolutely do too and I loved going to Borders and like looking at what was labeled incorrectly as soundtracks but um it was so much about the internet. Like, the internet, I was at the beginning of that era where internet gave us access to, like, theater and information that we didn't have otherwise. And I would literally go on Amazon and be like, ooh, hey, my name is Alice, sounds interesting. Mom, can I get that one next month? So it was really like the internet gave me access to all these musicals and cast recordings and, like, information I didn't have and that a kid 10 years earlier might not have been able to unless they were in New York yeah. or closer to New York. Yeah. So it was a lot of, like, Amazon cast recording wish lists. <laughs> what was your favorite one? Um, do you know, I have been thinking about this a lot lately. In Trousers literally like blew my brain open. Really? <laughs> yeah. Don't, I mean, I love that cast recording oh, so much. yeah. It's perfect. It really, I feel like that cast recording like very much, that and Merrily and like so many others, Merrily being my favorite, but yes. In Trousers being one I just don't think about as often. Um, it, it like made me realize what musicals could be and mm-hmm. that it's not a song cycle and it's not a review obviously but it's a theater piece but it's not exactly a musical and I was just like this is new this mm-hmm. is like really something that theater can be now what books were you using? I was obsessed with Not Since Carrie which Not of Since course. Carrie the Bible of course. Um, and Ted Chapin's book Everything Was Possible it was oh, very formative yeah. to me um, but you know there were a lot I'd kind of just devoured anything that was about theater were you a big library person were you always at the library totally I think like and this is I think the best thing my mom ever did was she was kind of like she's I love my mother my mother just done a lot of good things but she literally would always say to me like reading anything is going to be beneficial to you it doesn't matter what it is and for some reason that made me feel less guilty when I was like well I'm going to read Sweet Valley High but it made me a better reader because I didn't feel like it was an assignment right. I didn't feel like I just never got it into my head that like reading was a chore mm-hmm. um I don't know she just kind of like trained me to be a super reader so I would read anything I could get my hands on at the library that's amazing that's that is so amazing, incredible actually. Yeah. and you haven't lost that 
Yeah, I like reading. <laughs> I'm reading this book right now that, oh my God, I haven't talked to anyone about this, but it's called Fanfare. And it's this book that's um, a press agent from like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Richard Maney wrote this like tell all. I love when I can find like out of print books that people kind of don't remember, but that tell a lot of like relevant theater stories. Right, to it's our true. Lives. Like, yeah. Um, it's really interesting. It's a good book. Fanfare. Yeah. Would you get it on Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just kind of like browse and like, oh, there's like an out of print theater book done, sold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. They're not often. I mean, they're not like expensive. You can kind of find them. That's not like I a never penny. even thought to do that. Yep. That's a great idea. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. And then uh, you're in high school. It's time for college. Yeah. <laughs> and what's on your list? Do you know I only applied to NYU? Because you were like, that. I got to get to New York City. Yep. You, yep. you knew that you had to be where... Yeah. yeah. I said, if I don't get in, I'm going to chain myself to my bedpost and reapply every semester until I get in. You can't stop me. I'm not applying anywhere else. Thank God I got in, although, I mean, it would have been fine. I would have just listened to cast recordings all the time, changed my bedpost if I hadn't. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I just I applied early decision. It was like you know I was really wanted to be in New York. And was there ever? Did you ever think about going as an actor? Do you ever? Did, was that ever an option on the on the table? You know I loved like performing growing up, but I think like I knew at a very a pretty young age like I didn't want to do it as a profession. Uh. Um, but I always like I always thought it was so fun to be like part of the party and to be like in the ensemble of shows in high school and like mm. I I didn't not want to do that, but I knew it wasn't like a profession I was gonna do. Mm. Well, how did you, what major, what was your major at NYU eventually? I actually majored in dramatic writing, um, which was kind of weird because I, I did it because I liked theater and I liked writing, but most people in that department wanted to be a playwright or a screenwriter. And I was like, I want to be a theater historian and like work in producing and do all these things. But there's no major called like theater historian, producer, director of programming. Yeah. Like, you know, I just kind of <laughs> shaped my major a little bit. And I feel like I learned as much from being in New York as I did from being in NYU. Oh my gosh. Did yeah. you have a lot of mentors when you first got to New York City? or You know, I mean, throughout college, I started finding those right mentors. Um, people who I think I would consider like historians almost uh, did a lot to kind of mentor me at school, um, for sure. Did you seek out a lot of the people that you have such great relationships with now, or did they seek you out? Oh, my God, no, definitely I seeked, suck. (laughs) 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 I was, what's the word? I sought, sought, thank you so much. I actually got a pretty good SAT score. I'm pretty ashamed of that, (laughs) (laughs) what just happened, (laughs) since we're talking about high school and stuff. Um, Yeah, I sought out a lot of people. Um, I was thinking about this recently, because I recently put together this big Ed Kleban evening at 54, which was very much like a labor of love. And um, Ed Kleban, I always call my favorite writer that I never got to meet. And we should say that Ed Kleban, sometimes our listeners are like, who? But he wrote A Chorus Line, among many other things. But maybe, and he was the, the center of the musical A Class Act. Yeah. But he, he, some people say he didn't get the recognition he was due, you might say. Because he was a composer as totally. well as a, as a lyricist. A, I'm really glad you made that note. So yeah, Ed Kleban, um, obviously, you know, he wrote a lot of musicals. The only one that anyone really actually knows is Chorus Line. Although, yeah. of course, Class Act told the story of his life. Um, but this project was, I've always, like, I loved A Class Act just really affected me. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you did too. And um, Ed Kleban, his longtime woman in his life, Linda Klein, who wrote the book To a Class yep. Act, I interviewed her for something about a year and a half ago and went, all I want is to uncover a bunch of this Ed Kleban material that nobody's heard from all of these musicals that weren't produced but have such amazing songs of his. Um, so we really did that and it was just the most unique experience. I always call him my favorite writer I never got to meet because wow. sadly, and it's amazing to think about like I grew up loving Craig Cornelia and I've gotten to know Craig and like I grew up loving Bill Finn and I've gotten to know Bill like it's incredible and Ed is definitely just like if I had a time machine I would go have dinner with him um, but I do think a lot about like I reached out this is a really long winded answer to your question nope. but um, Marvin Hamlish um, I was doing like uh, I put together a kind of a showcase type thing for uh, BCFA and NYU because I was like this will be a fun way to kind of do a review and while in college those. you were yeah, in college yeah, yeah, just yeah. to clarify you uh, were in like, college yep. exercise those musical theater muscles I directed it J.R. Armstrong Johnson choreographed it. We went to school together. Um, and a ton of great people were in it. And it was there was some class act material. There was some chorus line material. And I was like, I'm just going to write Marvin Hamlish a letter. Um, I wrote him a letter. I told him like how much it meant to us that we were getting to do this material, how much we loved it. And I invited him to come see the show. And he couldn't come to the show. But he was like, I can come in the afternoon of the show and meet with you guys for like an hour and talk about it. <laughs> I, it was amazing. Like it was it was so generous, and I I it was unbelievably generous. He's obviously like a very busy, very successful man, and he took this afternoon out out of his life, and he came to our like. Um, 
you know, like multi-purpose room that we were doing the show in. And he sat with us and he told us like really great stories about Chorus Line and other like, you know, things that we were talking about. Um, And we all used to quote him because he said that he was dating when Chorus Line first came out. He wasn't married yet. Um, And he would take women to the show and they'd be like, I love this. And he'd be like, I wrote this baby. (laughs) (laughs) And so like... A Chorus Line got him laid. (laughs) That was definitely the subtext. But like he just, in that he just knew how to kind of like tell funny stories like that yeah. college students he was so wonderful and we talked about Ed Kleban of course um, and it was just so memorable and like I was just thinking about that a lot because of the Ed Kleban evening that like I got to have that moment with Marvin who sadly left us oh, a little way too soon later. Yeah. way too soon way too soon yeah that's, but a- that, that's the kind of stuff like I would write a lot of letters that led crazy places yeah. because people were unbelievably generous with their time a lot of uh, students feel that if they are to write a letter or to seek out somebody they admire and respect that it's sort of bothering them that it's pestering them mm-hmm. and for you, that seems to be the total opposite is that I, correct yeah absolutely and I always tell people that it's like nothing is less obtrusive like it's a letter is so lovely like you guys I'm gonna be honest I wrote a fan letter to George C. Wolf recently because I'm so obsessed with Shuffle Along like I wrote this a week ago um, and I, I interviewed him for my book I mean he doesn't know me well we don't know each other well but like he knows who I am I like wrote him this long fan letter just being like thank you and these are all the reasons why your show has really like affected me as a historian and made me like think a lot about things I wasn't thinking about and I, I think it's always lovely to, I mean, it's not lovely to run up to someone on the street and grab them by the collar and start yelling at them about how much you love Newsies, but right. like, it is fine. <laughs> it's fine to write a letter. It's actually lovely and invite them to something you're right. doing or, you know, that's and, fine. And who doesn't want to have, you know, praise in some way? I would, we're all human and everybody, no matter how you're successful you are, you want to, I mean, you know, Sondheim loves to hear that people appreciate his work to still totally and Sondheim's so generous about writing back like he really is and a lot of people are and even if they're not it's like as long as you don't expect anything back you're just writing and saying like thank you and also you know the letters I wrote were like this is why your work has really affected me and if you ever need an assistant or a PA like I would Mm -hmm. love to learn from you which you know was very genuine and I think people sense authenticity from letters that they get and if people say no they say no I'm sure you know I got plenty of people I've written to in my lifetime for an interview for anything like don't write back but that's fine. They're busy yeah. and some people will write back. So you just have to do it. So Tell right. us about some of those interning and PA jobs that you had when you first <laughs> came to the city. You know, it's so funny. I really was like, I want to learn as much as I can from doing as many different things as I can. So especially in college and like the first two years out of school, I interned or PA'd like just insane, weird, like a week of the Adams Family workshop and like a week of like a new play James Lapine was working on and like a week of... I assistant directed like an actress fund benefit that was at the O'Neill that I like sometimes because these things are only a week you're just forget about them until you're at a place where you remember Mm -hmm. um just like a lot of interesting opportunities that I was lucky enough to get to observe people to just kind of run around and take notes or get coffee or just like you know take scripts right and be in the be in the room (laughs) where it happens Pins. You can say it. You can say it. It's now part of our. It lexicon. already feels dated now, but it's, yeah, no, but it's no, true. But totally to, to be a witness of all of those different events, I think, is the yeah. best educational opportunity you can get. It really. was, and really, like, I mean, my first big opportunity was that I got to be Michael Barres' assistant when he was the director of Title of Show, and I knew I didn't want to be a director, but I learned so much from being a director's assistant that I felt like was relevant to things oh. I would want to do yeah. later. Um, that I actually like, and then I ended up assisting Michael Greif for a while, and it was. Kind kind of like oh like you know people are confused by that it's like you graduated college and what you're doing this oh you want to be a director I was like no um and I I think I I try to tell people that who've just graduated like learn a lot of things because you don't have to there's nothing saying that the thing you do immediately after you graduate is where you have to be in 10 years like just learn just Mm -hmm. like keep trying different things yeah then so you're doing all of these things and I have to I just have to ask you where did the love from Merrily mm-hmm. come along? I was I originally thought we should do today's episode backwards. <laughs> that we started with goodbye and the thanks, and then we just worked our ways to hello. For, and I like the original Merrily. I'm a huge. We did the original in college, like oh, the amazing. that original version. I don't know my, but it's I'm I'm a huge fan yeah. of Merrily as well. How did that start for you? I 
you know, because I discovered things through cast recordings, mm -hmm. everything was equal to me. It was like everything had a recording and it didn't matter if something had run 10 performances or a million, like it was all the, the recordings. So the Merrily recording just really immediately affected me, the original cast recording. And I went, oh my God, like I'm, you know, however old, 10 years old, but for some reason, this story of like these friends and trying to pursue the arts and like what that means in New York, like mm -hmm. it just fully like flummoxed me. It really made me, I mean, it's really weird. I've discovered this recently. It's like, I loved Merrily and class act and all these musicals about musical theater writers and like young people in the city and all this stuff. And then like, I did it after I feel like people might identify with musicals that are about their life, but I kind of made my life into those musicals in a weird way. Yeah. It's so funny. Do you ever think about stuff like that? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. But so for some reason, Merrily really just all the characters, all of what it was. And then the fact that I started learning about how it was this very, um, ambitious, you know, not failure, but like it, the way it went on Broadway, basically. Yeah. Um, I just became more and more fascinated by it. And of course, not since Carrie has a lot of information about Merrily that made me more fascinated as well. Do you, now, I know there's what, like three or four different versions of Merrily. Is that correct? Oh, there's a lot. Through, there's maybe so more many. Than I can't believe you did the original. The, yeah. Because the um, York did it and then they re, they and kept, then it yeah. Like, in London. York and the London mm -hmm. version, the Encores version. The um, now there's going to be a new version in LA. Yeah. People, um, you know, there's, all of this trying to fix it and really the issue is that there's you can't fully fix it like can you give a little rundown of the plot just for our sure, sure, it, sure, it sure, sure. someone is yeah. like no of course. i don't know that i love Merrily roll along is a musical by stephen sondheim and george firth that was originally directed by hal prince that's about basically three friends um and they're going backward the story goes backwards in time so it's um you know frank charlie and mary who all start out at the beginning of time as very close friends and then you see how their friendship progresses and how their life and how their careers progress but at the beginning when you meet them they're at the oldest point so um, it's a very I, there's no way to like quote unquote fix the fact that when you meet people they're technically more unlikable than they will be at the end like that's right. part of what the show is you're never going to fix that just like on last five years just like on anything with the time continuum there's certain aspects of it that I think people think are going to get fixed that are it's not a fi fix is not the right word and it ran for only like a couple like a it was like a week I don't even remember exactly it ran for about two weeks yeah. but it, it was you know it ended Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim's Broadway collaboration and, and this is after like you know Sweeney Todd I mean everyone was yeah, like this yeah. is the next big show it's gonna be a hit and, and it was a and I think that's part of the reason why everyone kind of tries to fix it even yeah, though it's like a, a fascinating musical for a lot of people for that reason uh, yeah. when did if it even only runs a minute come into all of this I started doing the concert series in uh, January of 2010 and it was because Kevin Michael Murphy and I love that like Kevin's with three names like A plus because <laughs> you know I was thinking about that um, <laughs> it's a good thing to be as a Kevin with three names um, Kevin Michael Murphy and I thought you know we really want to do something to celebrate underappreciated musicals um, and so we started doing this concert series that brings people who originated roles and the original writers back to do songs that they sang on Broadway and off-Broadway and um, people who would be playing the roles that the shows came out today to sing them and it kind of um, became this larger than life thing where we would have photos and you know behind the scenes and all of these stories um, and we would narrate each of the concerts and we've done over 15 of them now wow. um, and each concert has been different musicals so we've been able to kind of bring back little pieces of all these shows that people might not remember and have people celebrate them and remember them um, it's been very formative but um, we're big fans of putting as much as possible on YouTube so that like that person can learn about it in Ohio or wherever they that are. That is so special. It's educational on top of being entertaining and I think it's so important to remind young people or older people but what these shows are and who they are. Totally. Um, and what's cool is that I feel like little pieces of what that was have kind of trickled into because I was doing that long before I started my job but like you know 54 Below we're doing um, a production like a, a musical and concert of Onward Victoria this month and it's like things oh. Like that. Uh, you know, we have an amazing group putting it together. Like, seeds have been planted from that concert series that I feel like I've been able to do. Like, we did Smile in concert. Like, it's like all these 
full musicals in concert or just like songwriting teams. Like we've been able to just bring a lot of stuff back and make people, you know, understand that that's as much of a part of it as mm-hmm. the hits are, which yeah. is really important. And then going back, who is Kevin? And how did you get a relationship with him? Kevin and I always just would nerd out over like underappreciated musicals together. We went to NYU at the same time um, and we kind of became close afterwards. It's very, NYU is a very big place. Most of my good friends went to NYU. We might have been there at the same time, but we didn't become friends till after when we were like working on stuff, which is weird. <laughs> uh, but Kevin, I always, you know, we would just talk about like glory days for five minutes and then go away. And so we met and we were like, let's do this concert series. And um, he was on the Book of Mormon tour for like two years. So so we would do it more intermittently um, and we hope to do it forever. What was the first uh, concert you did in that series? Um, so each concert celebrates about 15 different shows. So oh. um, yeah, so that's what um, we've done about, you know, like over 200 musicals now, like, cause each concert will just have, the first one was literally Craig Carnelia came and talked about his life after high school, like Heidi Blickenstaff sang from Floor of the Red Menace. And we told some stories about that. Um, Nick Blamer came and did Glory Days. The first one, Nancy Anderson did Class Act. It was mm. like all people that I kind of knew that I could get. And then the second concert was like Evan Pappas did my favorite year. And that's when we met. And so as the concerts grew, like by the time it's like the 14th concert, it's like a whole slate of people that I reached out to cold because they kind of know what the concert series right. is then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've gotten a chance to do a lot of stuff. And also it's, we've uncovered things like Truckload which is this musical that closed in previews in the 70s that I always was fascinated by and we had Louis St. Louis who's the writer and Pat Birch he did Birch. Grease 2 the yep. composer of Grease 2 they all did Grease 2 yeah. uh, Pat Birch who's the director at Grease 2 and Truckload are actually weirdly intertwined which you know oh. and um, the assistant director James Dibus who also is like original cast member of Pacific Overtures and Joy Harewell it's like we had all these original Truckload people all come and Eileen Graff who was in it she was amazing and was also there and sing for my love my wife it was like this truckload celebration and it was like as it was part of <laughs> Nymph that year we did a family of minute as part of Nymph and it was literally like these 150 people walked out of the theater being like this is the most famous musical that's ever existed because we awesome. we had like talks and songs and stories and photos and it was like something that closed in previews where all the actors and writer and everyone found out that it was done after a show like they never got to even do a final show it closed in previews so like it was like this coming back to life of this thing that they had all cared so much about and so we've been lucky enough to do a few things like that where it's like mm. bringing something really back to life that means something to the audience and to the people on stage. Um, I think all the other musicals we celebrated in that edition were like, oh, like, but we're not as good as Truckload. <laughs> <laughs> and what a celebration of, for those writers is, I mean, it, it's good for them to, be, they wouldn't have that revisited if it weren't for you. I mean, that's a really special gift totally. to give them as well. Okay. Well, the best yeah. thing is that when those writers are kind of like, you know, no one's asked me about this show. And yeah. It's something that was on Broadway. Like, you know, people believed in it. People enjoyed mm-hmm. it. If we think about the shows that we love and enjoyed that didn't play for very long, mm-hmm. like there's people from another time who like Truckload was their insert name of something. Like, yeah. You know, something that closed recently. The untold stories of Broadway. This is fascinating. Would you... Everybody I speak to, I'm always like, you have to buy this book. Uh, I just, I, 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 and I did that everybody. when you told me to. I <laughs> oh yeah, and so I, I can't wait. I know there's a third one coming out yeah, soon. I'm thank very you excited about that. that. But tell me about what is the Untold mm-hmm. Stories of Broadway? So what is it? So it's a book series published by Dress Circle. Um, each book takes eight different Broadway theaters and takes you through the stories of each Broadway theater chronologically through people's personal stories who I've interviewed, through discoveries that I've made that are about the theater, um, through basically Basically, you know, stories from actors, directors, producers, but also stagehands and musicians and box office treasurers and people yeah. you don't hear from as often. Um, and so what's been really cool is like each book has eight theaters, one being a lost theater. So a theater that's no longer um, a Broadway house or demolished. Um, and so that's been an interesting aspect of it. And this next book, which is my third book, which is coming out in November, what's really cool is that, you know, I started doing these interviews in 2013. I've done almost 300 interviews at oh, this point. Um, but I did interviews in 2013 where I went okay but like some of this material I'm talking to these people about is about theaters that are not even going to be in it until the third book so there's just stuff I've been sitting on for like three years and then there's also a lot of new stuff from interviews I've done in the past year. Has anyone you've interviewed since passed? Yeah, actually. Um, Randy Morrison, who was a stagehand at the Schubert, um, who he sadly passed away. And like, I have some amazing stories from him. I've actually been trying to find um, his family to send them like the full audio of my oh, interview with him. That would be great. Yeah. Um, but what's really, I mean, it's amazing. And I, 
I've thought about that a lot. Actually, the third book, one of my big focuses was to interview people that are over the age of 80 um, because, you know, it's maybe a little morbid, but when stories are gone, like when people are gone, the stories go with them. Um, and I really, what's interesting to me has become, it's become more apparent as I've been working on the books is that most of our Broadway theaters opened in the 1900s or like the 1910s. <laughs> and there's no way to talk to anyone, obviously, who was in them for the first 30 years. Like all those people are gone. And I will do a lot of research to try to read books that were written 50 years ago or articles um, to give the story of the first 30 years in the theater. And then there's like very few people you can start to get to. Like I got to interview George S. Irving or like, you know, people like that yeah. who will talk about the 40s. There's like a very small amount of them. Mm. Um, and then you get to the 50s and it's like maybe a little easier, but there's still not a lot of people still around. So it's like, it every year that goes by, like there are people I was dying to interview who've left us since I started the series. Um, and it, it's just if you don't capture the stories, they're they're gone. But I think that's we can definitely relate to you on that yeah. because that was part of the yeah. reason why we started this podcast with mm -hmm. interviewing because we wanted to capture those stories before they are gone. That's yeah. amazing. Do you yeah, plan to ever release the audio interviews? Do you know what? The tricky thing is that because the book is actually so edited in a way that like we, the first book we released, we did an audio book and we were like, wouldn't it be cool to use parts of the recorded interviews? They're not fancy recorded the way you guys are doing, you know, your fancy podcast. Um, some of them are much worse quality or much better quality, which actually um, in doing like interviews, it's like sometimes when I'm in a dressing room with someone, it's the right um, situation to be interviewing them and I'm like this audio is going to be terrible but like it's good that we're in your dressing room because that's a setting for it yeah. whatever but um, but the, the interviews are actually so different than what is in the book it, they really are it's really a lot of like I <laughs> this is a weird way to say it but I like fact check people's memories um, and most of the time it's you know someone will be like oh I did this in you know 1968 and then I did this and I'm like no you did this first and then that in 1969 mm -hmm. or whatever it is so there's a lot of that and then there's a lot of um, because it's theater by theater I might talk to someone for an hour and I might talk to them about the St. James in minute 10 in minute 14 and in minute 50 right. and so then you're knitting those three like memories together for a St. James story so so the audio recording is at some point I you know might surface in some way but they're not the book like the book is very edited step into the world of power loyalty and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, how did you decide on the first theaters that you were going to put in the first book? Mm -hmm. The first you know, it's such a puzzle um, and it's such a cool puzzle to me but like um, I really did the first eight theaters that I did were the ones I had been able to get the most information about and the most like well-rounded stories um, a lot of what figuring out who to interview is is going like oh I need a stagehand from the lyric and I need someone who worked at the St. James in the 50s and I need a woman's perspective on this or like a person of color's perspective on this show or um, trying to be inclusive of people of different ages and races and genders and mm. jobs and just like so many different things and so um, someone might have worked like someone who I really want to interview who's really awesome might have only worked at these four theaters and three of them I've already done and so like there's I, I shouldn't interview them so it's a weird like puzzle of that I didn't um, know it was that specific that you were looking to cover all of those yeah, different things yeah and it's not easy because like one of the theaters that's in this third book has been a really big challenge to find people on house staff to talk to and this is the only time that this ever happened has happened to me in like almost 300 interviews but I interviewed someone um, I finally got like house staff member from the theater to do an interview and it was lovely it was a great interview we had a wonderful time and this person like had read the book and was a fan of the book and then a couple days later was like you know what I don't feel comfortable going on the record about my job and there was nothing negative about the interview like it wasn't nothing bad was about it but 
they were like, I, I don't feel like my job is to be in the public eye. And this has been, it's been a recurring theme with wow. people who, because I interview a lot of people that are never interviewed, like just people like a house manager jobs, like or, manager. yeah, totally. And I, I said, you I know, love that. You I totally, that. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I said, I totally understand. Um, is there anything I could do to make you more comfortable? Do you want to like see some quotes? Like I didn't, there's nothing that maybe you're alarmed by something and we can cut it out or, yeah. and this person was just like, no, I just don't feel comfortable. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm back to square one and not having this perspective at all from this theater, which is okay. But it's, you know, I don't, for me, like I don't want the books to not represent anything fully. And so it's a challenge to kind of make sure that I do everything I can. Yep. Like I can't, if I can't find someone from the forties from the Broadhurst and like, what are you going to do? But like, you try your best. How do you find house staff and people? <laughs> I mean, really, it's not like you can go on internet. And I mean, how do you find people from the 50s and 40s and 60s? It's even? been so, oh my God. Because they're not challenge. on IBDB, you know? Like. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of it is um, going, oh, this person I know is around um, and worked at the Broadhurst in the 40s per yeah. se. And I don't know them, but I know this person and they would know that person. I can ask them to connect me. Um, so that's been a part of it. <laughs> Um, but another part of it has been like leaving letters at stage doors, um, like friends who, you know, I'll say, oh, I have these friends who worked at the Schoenfeld. Maybe I can ask them who, what stage door men they know at the Schoenfeld mm -hmm. or women or whoever. Um, so I've done a lot of like, you know, thinking about which friends have worked at which theaters and might know how staff. Um, it's just like a lot of that. Wild. <laughs> it's like Another. spelunking. It's, it's like real it's, detective work. It spelunking. really is. It's <laughs> spelunking. It's spelunking. But it's been really exciting because like I'm writing about these theaters and I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, I have two hours today. I'm going to really dive into the 1910s at the Schoenfeld. And then it's like I have friends that are in the Schoenfeld right now. So it really like my whole goal of this is like to make history tangible for people and to make it so that someone who loves Wicked is like, I want to read about the Gershwin where Wicked is and then goes like oh cool Sweeney Todd and like Via yeah. Galactica and what else has yeah. been here um, and so you know being able to be like I'm writing about the 1910s of the Schoenfeld oh my god I have to tell my friend that like this crazy thing happened in 1917 like whatever yeah. um, because he's in that box right now it's like these physical spaces connect all of us and still have so been, are years. being used in the exact same way that they were used 100 years ago yeah, I mean exactly. that's pretty magical one of like my favorite parts of the third book that I'm like so excited about is that the Schoenfeld and the Broadhurst are like connected through these secret um, tunnels. When I did Les Mis, yes. uh, I have to, I mean, to give up. <laughs> no, but, no, go ahead. Because this is one of those things that not a lot of people know, but there is a door mm -hmm. between those two theaters. And so Chorus Line was going on in, in that theater and we were in the, in the Broadhurst and we would, during one day more, the whole cast of A Chorus Line would be like in our wing watching us sing and then we'd go watch them do one uh, in oh there. Cause, but it was like a little pass door. I mean, it was like yeah. a little secret door and there's like a little alley and you can go in. And it's mm -hmm. wild that like no one would know that you could like hang out backstage and watch someone else's show. But I, you I would. love that. Um, yeah, Celia the, told me like that when she would oh, die yeah. as Eponine and she would go watch Chorus Line. Mm -hmm. Like, which mm -hmm. so I love, I didn't know that everybody did and I love knowing that. Um, what's really cool is like, it's obviously like very unique it's not no other two theaters have that exact like there's literally a pastor to get from the broader stone mm -hmm. um and so like throughout history like probably like i have stories from like the 70s of this going on so it's like and then it's like oh the God, story so it's it, it, it just it's another that thing that makes we weren't the so, first ones to do it yeah. we thought we were we thought we were so smart and it's so funny that. i love when it's too because it's also like um jekyll and hyde and fossey would watch each other the same way that you guys yeah. did with, um course line and so like it's it's so funny. And then like Jeremy Jordan told me that Hugh Jackman would just come say hi to them at Bonnie and Clyde. Like there's this pastor has like this, you know, history. So it's stuff like that. That's really unique to Broadway mm -hmm. that makes it a community in ways people don't expect. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to give like the 50 years of this Schoenfeld Broadhurst pastor. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so crazy. Cause no one tells you either. You just kind of discover yeah. it on your own. It was, it's wild. Totally. Oh and it's really like what I saw it for the first time. I have my friend Charlie Rosen who's working on American Psycho. Oh. Yeah. And I was like, let's go see the pastor. And so we did. And we literally were like, oh, we're on the Tech Everlasting set. Yeah. Like we, you open the door and you're like, because there's, there's a few different ways to go back and forth, but it's, they're really, mm -hmm. and it's. And they, you're right on stage. I yeah. mean, it's like right there. And the wing yeah. space is not big. So yeah. you're like, yeah. And they all, I've uncovered a couple different things. Like I've heard that, you know, obviously the Schubert's have all those theaters very interconnected mm -hmm. so that they could travel back and forth without being like noticed or seen. And so, you know, the way that like the Schubert and 
in the booth and like all those theaters you can get back and forth through like tunnels and mm. uh, fire escapes and things. That was part of it. But then also it was like, because like a lot of the theaters, the Schoenfeld and Broadhurst are actually like sister theaters. They were built at the same time. I've heard that like, so they would only have to have one heating plant. They had to be connected in that way. Like different things like that, that have mm. literally affected like friendships and hundreds of years of history. <laughs> yeah. It's just so funny to like it, intricacies of Broadway. Do you still get awestruck when you walk through a theater door? Totally. Totally. I was thinking of this recently. Like, I haven't been backstage at every theater, and it's because I, like, want to save some. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't want to, like, the same way it's like I like going theater by theater in these books, and, like, the show Schoenfeld is really special to me right now, and I'm spending so much time on it um, in a way that if I was just writing one book about all 40 theaters, it would just be, no. you know, 40 yeah. theaters. Like, it's each theater becomes special to you in its own way, and, like, I hope to have memories that are, like, backstage in, in the theater of all of them, of course but it's like I don't want it all to be like over in some weird way totally. so I've, I've saved some now do you plan on including theaters that have been demolished or no longer with us anymore yeah yeah so um, it was a big part of um, what I wanted to do is the first book has the Mark Hellinger which we know is the Times Square Church now um, and that was you know a Broadway theater for so many years up until the late 80s and so that was really great to get stories about because also I have you know I think we all have this hope for it that at some point it actually could turn back into a Broadway theater and you can go in and, and it's still, it's still it, it preserved. Yeah. I mean, you can still see the beautiful... I mean, like, it's it's a gorgeous theater that's still... I mean, it's not been churchified. Totally. totally. Well, the church has, like, totally... They've kept it up. It's like, if the right money and transaction came into place, like, the theater's not destroyed. It's, no. like, very amazing. It's very beautiful. Um, it looks just like when My Fair Lady was there or when Rags was there. Oh. Um, and so it, I wrote about that in the first book. And in the second book, I included the Criterion Center Stage Right, which was a roundabout house, which was um, gotten rid of, but was a roundabout space... Um, um, in the 90s, mostly. Um, and then the third book actually includes the Edison. And the Edison has oh, been wow. awesome to talk about because I've, it, I mean, I've hunted down some people and God bless Maria Didia, who is a general manager and amazing producer. Like she's a woman of many hats um, who was very integral in the Edison history. But like the Edison um, is, you know, is the Hotel Edison's ballroom event space. Um, but that was a Broadway theater for one year in 1950 and then from like 1970 to 1990. And it was like, it could be in the round. Like they did stuff in the round. Oh, Calcutta was there for a long time. Wow. And it, it has this crazy history. Like it is, it actually has like an, it, it, I, I don't no even idea. know where to start. And that's <laughs> in the third book. I had book. no idea. I, I yeah. just, wow. Yeah. So it's still there. It's just, you it's can. It's still there. It's so, it was built as the hotel's ballroom. And in 1950, this theater company went, wow, theater in the round is becoming a thing all over America. Why don't we have a theater in the round on Broadway? They kind of purchased, they rented the Edison and they did some theater in the round. They did like basically a not-for-profit structure for about a year. Um, and it, you know, was a success in some ways and not in others, but they just didn't have the money to continue. So it was literally like a Broadway theater for one year. And this was pre-Circle in the Square. So it was like, there wasn't any other theater yeah. in the round. Um, and then in 1970, um, Norman Keene, who's this producer, kind of turned the Edison back into a Broadway theater. And for 20 years, he and Maria Didia, who started out as a dancer and was then an usher, was then a temp, was then his assistant, and then went on to like manage the theater, basically. She's, this, she's the coolest lady. Um, she kind of... Each chapter, I like to think, has kind of a narrator, and usually mm -hmm. it's someone who like really spent some time at that theater, and she was, she's was she been such a helpful narrator about the Edison. Um, but the Edison, for 20 years, was this, it wasn't owned by the Schubert's Niederlander or Drew Jamson. It was this independent theater where like like they had a bar before any other theater had a bar because there were no rules. They could have a bar. They just had to get a license, and that was it. Huh. So like other theaters would be like, hey, this bar seems to work. Maybe we should have more alcohol in our theater. Like, and the charge Edison, $20, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, totally. But the Edison was like... I, it was just more scrappy than anything that we've like that we have in our time. Yeah. Um, and the Edison went, oh, like we have 500 seats. How amazing to have a Broadway theater with 500 seats. We can take shows that um, are playing somewhere else, like a Broadway theater that is 800 or 1,000 seats that are really good shows, but are kind of like you know winding down. And just like what New World Stages does now, we can bring them to us and have them continue. So Sweet. they did wow. a lot of that. Wow. Um, but can you imagine the like musicals we could do if we had a 500 seat that made sense? Broadway theater like right. I'm fascinated by the Edison it's a lot in the book and also like they did the original love letters there so I have some interviews about that um, oh. a lot of you know people auditioned on that or actually another interesting is the BMI showcase was on that stage for many years oh. so the first time that like Maury Yeston heard nine on a Broadway stage was at the Edison or Michael John LaCusa heard his work on Broadway it, it has this I mean I, I the Edison is going to be 
the I thing. Well, I <laughs> this is that. all news that to is me. So yeah, cool. uh, really fascinating. And it's still. I mean, you can walk in. You can go to like a benefit there because it's an event space. But someday it, it could also be a Broadway theater again. It's kind of a dream. That fingers it might crossed. Be. Right. Fingers crossed. The Edison on that and the one. Hellinger. <laughs> Jeez. Now, you have such a large social media following. Do you feel any responsibility to the next generation of artists that are coming up? Totally. It's a really good question. I mean, I really think that, like, social media, of course, we all know has pros and cons, but the pros of it really outweigh the cons for me. And when I think about the fact that, like, we can do something cool at 54 Below that celebrates, like, a musical, and then not only can the 147 people in that room see it, it can go on YouTube, and it can go on Twitter, and, like, you can do a podcast where you're talking about these things that someone who, like, can't come in person because they don't live in New York can't come, like, see it live, but, like, by doing it as a podcast and putting on social media, you can, like, reach people, and, Mm -hmm. like, I just, like, I spend enough time talking to people who are high school students or college students who are not in New York to know just what that means and how it gives access to people that you know, wouldn't have had access. And so I just feel like social media, like I love being like, I'm obsessed with the Schoenfeld and I'm reading about and writing about the Schoenfeld today. Like everybody let's talk about the Schoenfeld. And then you kind of can't like, literally I did this last night. I like can't get off the Schoenfeld, but um, (laughs) it's, it's, I think social media is so cool in that way. And I do feel responsibility to like younger people to kind of use it responsibly, but by which I just mean like, you know, I don't find anything interesting or fun in being like, I hated this show. Nobody go see it. Like what is interesting or fun about that? Like if I don't like something I see, like let's go have a beer and we're friends and let's go like talk about what we thought about it. But like announcing to a bunch of strangers on the internet about it, I don't find productive or helpful for anyone. Like I'm not a critic. Like it's just not even interesting to me. And I think that some people do for some reason find it like whatever to that like a they want to share that on social media yeah. I don't even have that instinct but I do think that part of being responsible is just noting over and over like I might have not liked X musical it might not be something that I'm posting about a lot but like you should go see it if it's interesting to you maybe you will love it like everyone's gonna have different opinions the most responsible thing I can do is be like go make your own decisions about right. all these shows but see theater right exactly <laughs> yeah. like, one person's follies is another person's sweetie tot like whatever like I don't know what but people's opinions so are going to be different. It's art. It's art, <laughs> totally. Um, so I just try to emphasize that. But that's wonderful, and that's something we respect so much about you, which is everything is so positive. There's nothing pejorative. There's nothing negative, and it would be so easy yeah. to do that, and I think that trickles down to everybody else, and I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. What is the best piece of advice you've gotten, even more specifically, and from who was it? Yeah, you know, I think about this a lot, because the title of Show Gang were very formative to me, and they really taught me a lot about what it meant to be like a professional in this industry Um, and really like it's a similar thing to what we were just talking about but it's really like don't fit the mold like even if you're an actor like you're unique in a hundred ways and like what you might be an actor and you might also be interested in photography or you might be an actor who can play this role and that role that don't seem to match and it's just like there's no mold and like a lot of what this business is is going like oh I'm replacing the sixth person on tour in Mamma Mia I have to fit that mold And you do for that one particular moment that you're in that job, but it's also like really like kind of treasuring and celebrating the ways that you're unique and, you know, embracing that in other people too. And now before we talk about your amazing job at Feinstein's 54 Below, you are also probably one of the biggest advocates of new musical Uh theater. It's not not just the past. It's really looking to the the future future as well. Um, How did you get involved in the advocacy of new musicals? Um, I mean, I think that, like, we're in such an exciting time, and I've always been excited by what's happening now as much as, like, history. Um, I think there are so many great people writing now. Obviously, there's so many great people performing and directing, and, like, we're just living in this age where, I mean, there's, like, a lot of good stuff happening, especially in the center of it in New York. Um, I first got involved in new musicals. My first internship that I ever did was at the York Theater, which, um, love the York. Um, And they do, obviously, a lot of older stuff, bring back to, like, they also do new musicals um, and I also like in college I interned at the Rogers and Hayward Center organization because I love Ted so much um, and they <laughs> license a lot of older musicals and a lot of newer musicals so it's like all these ways that it's all tied together um, and I work a lot with Joe Iconis who's a musical theater writer and frequent collaborator of mine on a lot of his stuff um, and so that's kind of given me like a real window into what a current new musical theater writer is working on and going through and the challenges and the successes of it and all everything else um, and so this new musical series that I kind of spearheaded and produced the series of at Feinstein's 54 Below. Um, we did these 10 new musicals over the course of a couple months um, that were all like 
concert presentations of shows that have not been produced in New York yet, but have been produced in out of town or a significant amount of workshops and really getting them on stage with full bands and with really exciting casts and getting videos and getting important people there and getting just like excited family and friends and fans there. Um, and they've been these really wonderful experiences that, um, you know, the idea wasn't like all 10 of these shows are going to go to Broadway now, <laughs> but um, they've really gotten some good opportunities for all the writers and people involved as far as new people hearing their work. Now tell us, how did your job at 54 Below come about? Mm. What's weird about that is I also like truly, truly every job I've ever gotten has been because I was like, I'm going to do a thing I like and then like God bless some spirit in the universe, like someone's hired me to do it. So um, I was hired to be the programming director because uh, Joe Iconis and I work with each other a lot and I had produced some of his concerts at 54 Below, um, you know, obviously, f- you know, freelance in my free time, like while I was at another job. And when they were looking for a programming director, everyone at, over at the club was kind of like, oh, get that girl who did those shows. We liked her, like she was organized and whatever else. Um, and so <laughs> I kind of, I mean, I got asked to come in and talk about the job because I had been doing stuff that was just like things I cared about with Joe at the at the club. So are we living in a new golden age of musical theater? I really think we are. I mean, I was thinking about this. I try to like, you know, we all read these numbers and statistics that are being put out, but it's like there are at least 11 new musicals that are announced for next season on Broadway, like already in, you know, June. Um, And so, I mean, if you look at how, like look at five years ago, there were definitely not that many, like there are just the volume of new shows, I think points to a new golden age. A lot of things do, but the volume of new shows, definitely one aspect. If nothing else, at least the mass number Mm -hmm. of things that are coming Mm -hmm. in. There's a lot. Because the ticket prices aren't going down, you know? Yeah, no. I mean, a lot of it really has to do, I think, with like mainstream media and like movies and TV and regular music have made musicals seem like, look at it. It's this season. It's like Sarah Bareilles making musicals seem cool and Steve Martin making musicals seem cool. And it's like, welcome those people. Like, you're welcome here too. Um, and also, thank you for like bringing that out into the world. Yeah. Um, and Sting recently. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. You know, there's all, there's part of that. And then it's also like the re energizing of the Disney movie musical that makes people go, oh, my kids love Frozen. Let's go take them to see Mary Poppins. Like, whatever it is, that's not correct because Mary Poppins closed before Frozen. But, like, you know what I mean? So, um, the chronology. See, I just (laughs) fact-checked myself. Um, (laughs) Now we don't have to edit that out. Great. I think it's... Yeah, it's fine. Um, I think it's a lot of that. And I have done some interviews that have been really interesting about how a lot of the new golden age has to do with the material and the amount of work that's so wonderful. Um having to do with the fact that we lost an entire generation to AIDS and then it took yeah. this long for, because uh, we forget like, you know, of course we lost people that we all know. We lost the Michael Bennett's, we lost the Peter Allen's, but we also lost these people that were just coming up that hadn't had a chance to make their yeah. market, that it took this long for the community and the industry to really recover from that in a way. And it took this long for people to grow up with all of the popular types of music that, yeah. you know, like the way that Lin-Manuel like has grown up loving musical theater as much as he loved all these forms that now he's integrating into it and it's all these things that just took time to evolve and you know come to the forefront and make musical theater have as many people that are creating top-notch stuff yeah. as there are now um there's just so many factors to it i'm excited that's to great. see the, the next generation like that loves lin-manuel like what that's going to be because, because yeah. the craft is all still there and totally. so it, it's it's i think you're right it's going to be an exciting time ahead of us totally Um, I just hope it's like, it's not that everyone should go write rap musicals or like R&B musicals. It's that everyone should be coming up with these authentic ways to tell new stories in new ways. And it's like, you just hope we're not going to get, and maybe if we We will, we we will. will. (laughs) But that's the thing. If you look at these, like throughout history, it's like anytime there's a huge hit, there's like five shows that come in the five years after that copy it in some way that is unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like with jukebox musicals that kind of happened or like with shows that copied hair or, you know, there's even Oklahoma so at the time, like, they were like, you know, they would do, there were a couple shows that were flops after 100%, Oklahoma that 100%. were trying to emulate that idea. So I think it's so awesome that like a lot of stuff doesn't seem like it's copying it in that way right now, but I'm sure we're going to get at least one like James, you know, Monroe <laughs> rap musical. Like I just feel like. An all Asian cast. It's yes, going to be fantastic. And it purposelessly. <laughs> yes. Something like that will happen and it will be fine and then we'll remember it for the good things about it. Mm-hmm. And that will be able to get tickets too yep. exactly that's, 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 it's so I can't believe like, I think you just have to find out when tickets go on sale for the next block and buy them
for like a year from now. That's yeah. I should just do that. That's the way to do it. I should do that. Man. Maybe I'll just sneak in. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> just put on my sneak in. I'm sure it's like costume and walk through the stage door. That it could happen. Here for the show. Yeah. There, there are some I loved. Oh my god, Lin Manuel tweeted um, someone from Shuffle Along practicing tap in the alley the other day because the music box and the Imperial also oh, share yeah. like that weird alley. Yeah. Um, and the Rogers, the Rogers music box Imperial. Um, it's like you know interconnected theaters. Now let me ask you really quickly about Shuffle Along because I know you're. It's like my favorite thing ever. Um, does it belong as a best new? Musical category. Oh, definitely. Well, what's fascinating about it to me, in which I don't know why everyone isn't talking about this more, it's like it's definitely a new musical. It is not Shuffle Along from 1921 being revived. But in 1921, when they did Shuffle Along, musicals were so different that when they revived, and I'm putting that in air quotes, Shuffle (laughs) Along, um, you know, 20 years later and 30 years later on Broadway, it was as much what Shuffle Along was as this one is. Like, what a revival used to be was like, hey, we'll take some of those same characters and some of those same songs and and do some tap dances because they liked the tap dances in the original. And it was not as much... It wasn't a revival the way we know what a revival Mm -hmm. is. So when Shuffle Along was revived in the 50s, it was as much Shuffle Along as this is. So I just thought that was a really interesting argument for being like, why it's a revival versus an original. Weird. Um, So weird. And then also it's like the way that things in that production are emulating what the production, like the fact that Savion Glover's going in as like a specialty act, like there's no role. He's not going into a role. They're putting him in as Savion Glover. It's like they are emulating the spirit and like the form of the 1920s in a way that I just have never seen a Broadway show do that ever. Because for our listeners, like Broadway shows weren't always just like the story starts and then the story ended. But back in the 20s and earlier, I mean, it would be, you would have specialty acts. You'd have a loose storyline if you had a storyline at all. Then you'd have a star come in and they'd sing their signature song yeah. numbers and then so it, it was a slightly different setup than what we're used to today and it's nice to have a little capsule of history I think totally. on stage so that we get to know what that world was like. That's a good explanation yeah. of it. It's I'm so obsessed with that show. I just <laughs> think that like it's so moving to me to see these people that really made history and changed what our art form was and that people don't remember mm-hmm. being remembered. Like it's so powerful to see like these people really did change. Like there was a number that got cut that I was kind of devastated that got cut. Actually, it's so weird. So when people ask me like, if you had a time machine, what would you go back and see? And I'm always like, probably Follies. And now I'm like, I didn't see the first two weeks of previews of Shuffle Along or the making of dot, dot, dot. And I would go back to March of this year because I can't believe I did not go to the first two weeks. There's like 45 minutes of one of my favorite shows I've ever seen that I never saw because I like didn't go until the third week. What's wrong with me? Um, But but so... there was this number that got cut in between literally like the people who saw it at the beginning also I will say I'm jealous of them but like they should go see it again because it's a different show when I saw it the second time versus the third time there was a number that was cut that was all of these people going uptown to see Shuffle Along and the whole ensemble had these masks and one of their front of their mask was one person the back was another person and it was just like a who's who of all of these important people in American literature and music and oh. everything um, society that were going to see the show and you get a little bit of that that's still there of like like how George Gershwin took part of the you know melody that a musician was playing and turned it into a song and the mm-hmm. way people reappropriated this art um, that was not properly archived or remembered so they didn't get the proper credit um, but that number that was cut um, you know and I'm sure there were a hundred reasons to cut it and I think George Sewell was a genius and we're not criticizing but it was like that was so crazy to me to see all these names that people knew who they were and they have no idea who these main characters are who were seeing all night but they knew who these people with the masks were all those people went to see this and then they did stuff I do know about because of it like oh they were inspired that's interesting yeah. that's great yeah, it, yeah. So if that made, didn't exist then yeah. they would not have ever totally. done any of that I wonder and where that went like, away um, I think that they make the point in other ways and you mm-hmm. do get to see the way that and the big story is how George Gershwin took a couple notes from Shuffle Along yeah. and turned it into a very famous song yeah. um, so you do get parts of it but I just thought the power of having the whole ensemble be like and this person and that person and flipping the masks and doing the dance and it just that really that was one part that I was sad got cut and also something really unique is that most shows now don't really preview like this where there's so many changes going in during the preview period they shut down point, for a Bob. week they shut down for because it was you know they were it's like it couldn't go out of town. It was too crazy and expensive yeah. and big. And they literally, they were doing a different show at the beginning than they were doing at the end of previews. Like Merrily, only like they had enough power and clout and the way that they did it, they had enough knowledge to do it in a way that hopefully didn't hurt them as much. 
and I, I don't think wow. it did. And in this day and age, you know, we don't get to we don't get to see that happen very often with the new show. No, it's very Someone's rare. Tweeting about it and telling you, yeah. Well, that's, that's the other thing. Like, I feel like with the internet, is it any different to be in Boston uh, doing what they were doing than it is to be on Forty Fifth Street? Maybe a little bit, but like with the internet, mm-hmm. kind of not. No, like some anyone can tweet from Boston, like whatever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a whole new it's a new world, Golda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. That's a little fiddler on the roof That's for nice, you. That's nice, Rob. There's also, there's so many good revivals this oh, season. Oh, yeah, the good revival. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say that. Well, I'm seeing She Loves Me Tonight. I'm seeing Yay. Color Purple tomorrow, so Ooh. finally catching up. They're but so good. There's so wait. much good stuff. I love, I mean, there's so many good revivals. I love the Fiddler revival. Mm. Fiddler was great. Spring Awakening was beautiful. Spring Awakening. It was it's just a damn good season. season. That's exactly what we kept saying during yeah. the, the Tony Awards. One. I love that you guys are both catching up in such extreme ways. Like you're both seeing so oh, many yes. shows it's, now. <laughs> it's like a marathon. Yeah, it's, it's good though. It's American Psycho, oh, yeah, Neverland. Good. Yeah, all the good I ones. I saw Tuck Everlasting a yeah. couple days ago yeah. before it closed. I had, I just, I knew I needed to see something that's going to close so quickly, and I, yeah. I just. Yeah. I'm it, really sad for them. Me that too. There was so much that was really beautiful about that show. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. The ballet at the end. I was just like, and I'm excited for those guys to see more of their work. Oh yes. Songwriting was quite good. They'll be back. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. They'll be back, and hopefully you'll be back with yeah. us again. You guys, thank you for having me. Oh, what a pleasure! Thank you so much. It's a delight. A, thank you, and of course, for all of our listeners, we'll post links to where you can purchase the books. Get that book. Yeah, and we can't so wait good. to see what's next. I'm so excited to share that third book with you guys. <laughs> like, uh, I've talked so much about the Edison and Schoenfeld. You must be like, what? Are you I had about? no, no I had idea. About about minds are blown. Uh, yeah. Minds are blown. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. November. November. Great. Great. Yep. Just Wonderful. in time for Christmas and Hanukkah, everybody. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Get the new Jen Tepper book. All right. (laughs) Take care, everybody. Bye, everyone. Join us next week when we interview legendary Broadway gypsy Lawrence Merritt. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.